real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you. And after uh, much technical difficulty, we managed to connect with our guest here. Uh, I've got, for the first time, a police officer from Australia on. Uh, we have Corey Allen on the program, and he's joining us to discuss some policing differences uh, between the countries, uh, some programs he's been involved in, and a few different aspects of his own life. So Corey's been, uh, or Corey is an inspector at Queensland Police Service. He's been serving the community since 1986. The inspector was a key driving force in standing up the 52.8 million Bob Atkinson Operational Capability Center. He completed a Churchill Fellowship exploring youth homeless programs internationally, which was brought back to improve uh, police interactions with youth in Brisbane. Uh, Inspector Allen was awarded Alumnus of the Year in 2013 for Griffith University School of Arts, Education and Law. And he's also got time to conduct TED Talks, volunteers, and uh, makes media appearances such as this. So welcome, Inspector. Oh, uh, good morning here. I appreciate all your efforts trying to work out the technology that occurs in the modern age. Yeah. Yeah, it always seems to fail uh, when you need it the most. So, and again, I apologize. We're uh, trying to set up a, for the listeners. We're trying to set up a, a Zoom meeting, and um, I'm having this thing. It's kind of jamming up. So, we're doing this by phone, so the audio will be a little bit different. But no, thanks uh, for coming on the program. Um, and uh, you know, we usually kind of start at the beginning because uh, people like to hear about others. So hoping you can kind of start us at the beginning and tell us about you know where you come from and uh, what growing up was like. Sure. Well, um, just to put people in the picture geographically, Queensland is the state of Australia. It's a, it's a big piece of dirt, like 1.8 million square kilometers. Um, I've been doing my homework, so I know Edmonton's about 680 square kilometers, so we've got you well and truly on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, 5.3 million people in Queensland, 12,000 police. I grew up here in the capital city, which is Brisbane. Um, I was a pretty average kid going through everything that kids go through, but I grew up in a home that, you know, we had a fair bit of drama, if I can put it that way. You know, I grew up in a house where police came around regularly and, you know, there was alcohol and domestic violence and other issues. And, uh, you know, for a long time, I just thought that was how people grew up and that was normal. It wasn't until I um, got out of that home I realized that life could be different. Um, I was uh, always interested in the military. My father was an infantry uh, soldier, and um, I got accepted as a pilot into the Air Force and as an officer in the Army, and I went hot-tailed um, to uh, officer training in the, in the Royal Australian Army. Um, I uh, probably wasn't the best student there. I was pretty... Uh, I'm not going to say wild, but I really enjoyed the social aspects and um, fell in love with a girl down there and ended up resigning from the, from the military to be with her. And um, when you're 18 and a half and you think you know everything, 
it was not a surprise now looking back that that relationship lasted about two weeks mm. uh, before I hitchhiked my way back to Brisbane and um, found myself in a bit of a pickle. Um, my parents were, you know, I already had a difficult relationship with my parents because of the way um, you know, I was brought up and, you know, most of us couldn't wait to get out of the home, probably understandably. Um, so I didn't go home and I was embarrassed about the choice I'd made of trying to weigh a good career in the military. Um, and I ended up sleeping on the street. So uh, there was a nice park near the river that goes through the middle of Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Um, so I slept under my, at the base of particularly big trees for a while in the sleeping bags that the Army's probably still looking for. And um, I slept at friends' houses and under their house and in the abandoned car until I got enough money to have a little one-bedroom apartment of my own and slept on the floor there. Um, I, I'll be honest, that's fine. I didn't start up with any idea about I'm going to join the police and write all these wrongs that I've experienced. I actually didn't have any aspirations of joining the police because of the relationship with police when I was growing up. You know, police would come around to our house regularly and they really wouldn't help us. Mm. I would generally give my dad a bit of a talking to, if not a bit of, bit of physical encouragement not to be there. And then uh, I would, we'd, be, we'd be back at it the next week. So the, the police weren't people in that time in my city that you would cross the street to talk to, let alone you know, join them up when you've had that experience growing up. Um, but some of my friends, and school joined the police and they said this is perfect for you you know you've got the experience in the military you've got um, all the aptitude in the world and um, I was lucky enough to get in um, 30, 60 years later I'm kind of still engaged I still love going to work and still um, strangely I must have that personality trait that makes you want to be involved in everyone else's everyone else's problems mm-hmm. uh, and while policing's changed you know some of the fundamentals that, that I've grown up with that are sustaining me today you know the fact that we do you know we do actually go and help people um, even when they don't want to be helped sometimes you know we do have a lot of trust in the community and you know I've been looking at what's happening in Edmonton and around your way as well we're experiencing a lot of similar things and it's not getting any easier yeah yeah there's definitely a lot of uh, similarities actually even when I talk to a lot of the uh, Americans that I know or have had on here as guests, uh, same issues. Theirs are a little bit more, uh, I'll say, to the extremes mm-hmm. <laughs> than yeah. you might see uh, in Australia or, or in Canada. But um, yeah, it, it seems like policing is policing for the most part worldwide. Um, and you see the same issues. Uh, one thing I do want to kind of go back and touch on though was, so you're saying there alcohol was a, an issue in the home. Did you have any um, siblings that kind of had the same experiences as you and then maybe went the same path as you or anybody who kind of went on a completely different trajectory? Uh, I had a brother and a sister and we each of us carry a little bit of a, you know, a, a scar from what happened to those children and it definitely shaped our decisions. Um, you know, without going into details, my brother had a much harder time than I and he... Uh, he had, you know, a lot of contact with the police as a young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came good eventually, but, you know, I think, you know, when I talk to my children now, it's like, uh, you're going to get the start that I didn't get, you know, because, you know, you're in a safe house because, you know, we don't, you know, I have two drinks and I'm a 
I'm a lunatic, so I don't really have any more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, kids are well-fed and cared for. They probably never even heard a fight between my wife and I. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to get that start, and maybe they'll hit the ground running with, without having to overcome some of the behaviours and issues that we had as a young as a young kid. Um, I do think, you know, when I look back about you know, my ridiculous decision to leave the army to try and be with this girl to throw away, you know, a career as a young officer in the army. Um, I think that was based around my desire to make my own family and make a nice safe family because I didn't have that. Um, so I'm just lucky I'm a persistent, I'm a persistent person. I, I don't give up easily. Um, I've got this strange little saying I repeat in my head from time to time, you know, it's human if a human can do it, then I'm a human, so I'm, I might be able to do it, so I might as well try. Um, and um, like I, I'm more of the why not person that's the, hmm. that's the, the person that looks for reasons why you can't do things. And I'm like, well, let's have a go. People do it. They're people. Let's have a go. We can work it out. I can't police you often like that because I've got to work a lot of stuff out. Um, even as a young police officer, you've got to work stuff out when they're out there. Pretty quickly, you know, under heavy scrutiny, other people watching and filming, you know, recording yourself. Um, you do that for five years, and you know, you've got a PhD and making decision making, mm-hmm. whether you know it or not. Well, what and if you can kind of maybe talk a bit about what drove you to go the military route. So you, I think you, what you're saying is the reasons that you left the military was to start your own family and kind of go your own way. But what was the reasons you went to the military? Um, I enjoyed that structure. I enjoyed the physicality of it. Um, I was pretty good at it, you know, apart from getting into trouble all the time for going out with the wrong girls and doing that when it comes to the actual skills and the technical skills. Um, I've been in, we have a cadet program here, so I've been in the cadet program, which was really just another way of me getting out of the home mm-hmm. as often as I could, so I went and did every activity I possibly could. Um, but I, you know, I enjoyed it. I got a lot of... Um, um, positive feelings from belonging to something and then I just can't the military and the police are probably an extreme of those things but when you feel like you belong to something that means something that you know you got people around you all the time you know, it, it was very appealing Yeah, and I suppose it was a bit of a I was pushed by my dad because he'd been a, an infantry soldier and um, he was very proud of the fact that I'd got accepted as a young officer and he was Conversely, very pissed off that I'd thrown it away to chase a girl. Mm-hmm. So, sort of led to my embarrassment about going home. And, you know, I didn't think I was homeless at the time. I thought I was just an idiot, to be honest. I thought I was just a kid that had made a stupid choice and I was now paying the price for it. Well, and how long did you do in the military? Uh, I completed the uh, officer training and I uh, came up in Brisbane as a young platoon commander and then um, I left. Uh, I ended up going back into the reserve for a while, but um, I suppose policing was way too attractive for me. I find one of those guys that wanted to be in a tactical unit and other things as a young police officer, so um, that certainly wasn't an illustrious military career. Mm-hmm. But I do credit it a lot with making me think I could do anything. Um, and if my if my children ask me about it, you know, without pushing towards it, um, you know, a couple of years in the military is not a bad foundation for the rest of your life. You do establish some really good habits. You do establish some really good confidence about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a bad platform 
and even you know my short term led me to think, well, you know, if I can do it, always things I may to do that I can pretty much do anything. Well, and you know, what? I think uh, maybe that's a, a big component of things missing with people nowadays, especially young people. You see them; they maybe go to university, but uh, depending on the g- degree you take, some are more useful than others, and um, you know go out and join the military uh, or some sort of cadet program uh, and learn some life skills, maybe get to travel, see the world mm. instead of just, you know, sitting around being on your phone or social media or whatever else it might be. seems like a, a, a better path to go. <laughs> yeah, I think there's uh, a lot to be said for going through shared adversity with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know from you know, my previous role, I was five years, running um, operational skills for the police in Queensland to choose operational skills instructor. So we dealt with recruit training. And there's definitely a, a gap there for the generation that we're getting where we have to build up their resilience and we have to build up their interpersonal skills. Mm. We have to build up their competence. And it's there, like, you know, people are people and they're still really good people with excellent values and very keen. But the gap that we're seeing is, you know, a silly thing. And you do learn that in the military is how to carry yourself, you know, with your head up, looking at people face to face, not with your head down on the phone, um, engaging someone before they engage you, saying, good morning, sir, how are you? How's your day going? Um, and I don't know how many times at you know, police academy I would walk through and you'd see recruits with their head down, looking away, trying to avoid eye contact, and I'd be like, just wait. In less than six months, you're going to be out on the street talking to people. You want to land out, get your head up, look me in the eye, mm-hmm. engage me positively early, and be polite. You know, you don't have to be over assertive, but you know, you would know from your experience in the police that if you can make eye contact with someone and talk to them and approach them and and um, engage them the right way. It's actually a safer way of doing business anyway because you end up having a lot more to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention that you've got to start conversations with strangers as a police officer. Wearing a police uniform is just a barrier um, in circumstances where they might not want to talk to you at all. And uh, if you can't look people in the eye and say good morning and ask how they are and hold a conversation, you know, you've got a big gap to fill. Yeah. Well, and so... What I find interesting is so you go through the military and you develop all these skills, uh, but then you end up in a period where you're, you know, you're sleeping on a park bench. Mm. So how long was that period? Yeah, it was a good six months before I got stable accommodation. Wow. And um, probably speaks to the state of mind I was in. But even when I got that little apartment, um, sometimes I would just go and sleep in the park. And, I, and looking back now, now that I understand more about Mental health and homelessness, particularly with young people, I can understand that you know my self-esteem had taken a massive blow, and I probably thought at the time I didn't deserve to sleep in a with a roof over my head because I'd been such an idiot and made these decisions. Because uh, I, I would regularly go back to the park and sleep in the park if I was having a bad night, and for some reason I felt like okay, this is where I deserve to be. Uh, looking back now, and the work I've done with young people and homelessness in the city when I was the officer in charge of uh, city station. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see how sometimes people stay on the street, and even when there's accommodation for them, because maybe it's an indication of where their state of mind is at and how they 
feel about themselves. Mm. There's a useful insight and hindsight, but as a young as a young guy, I was just thought I was an idiot who'd thrown away a career and couldn't go back to my family, and I didn't really uh, deserve to be going okay. Uh, but, uh, and the other part was I think the thing that made the difference for me was um, I had one friend who was a great guy um, who used to go to the gym all the time. Uh, I also had a lot of other friends who were stealing cars and smoking dope and, and getting into trouble. And there were clearly two choices for me. I could hang around with the friends that were stealing cars and, and uh, doing crime and smoking drugs. Or I could go with my good mate who made a point of finding me and saying, hey, we're going to the gym today. Or he paid for my gym membership when I couldn't do it. And we would go and work out. And then we would go to yeah, where you can eat uh, anywhere that had an all you can eat round. Brisbane, we would we would hit it by the keep us going for a few days, and and um, that that really saved me from making three horrible mistakes. I could have easily been the kid that was in a stolen car, and I could would have never joined the police. I could have easily been the kid that was you know selling drugs to his friends to get drugs for himself, and I could would never have had a, a the life I've had. So that one person. Um, can make a difference in another person's life. And I've since learned that that one person can be a police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the right police officer in the right place, showing some empathy. You know, when you've got the time and you, and you have the capacity, having the right conversation in uniform is very influential. With a person that's probably the worst time of their life, you can, you can change the trajectory of that person's life, even if it's only 10%. You know, if you change the, their trajectory, 10 degrees, you know, they're going to be a long way away from a bad place in a few years' time because you had that conversation with them and you showed that time. Well, I think you kind of hit on a bunch of stuff that, you know, we were going to, uh, I was looking to get into at some point was you have a lot of driving factors that you just kind of ran through there mm. of why you do the things you do now, right? And why, um, like, you're involved in a whole bunch of different programs uh, or have developed a bunch of different programs to help youth and homelessness. Uh, and um, is a pretty amazing career. Is this the friend that you were talking about that was helping you out? Is this the same friend that told you to go or pushed you to go join police? Uh, no, he didn't like the police either. Oh. <laughs> we had you know, police in the police in nineteen eighties in Brisbane. We were just in just before a massive um, judicial inquiry into police corruption and police behaviour. Oh, okay. So, while I have no doubt that there were a lot of excellent police in Queensland at that time, our contact with police was not good. Like we, we knew police that did drugs. We knew police that would smack. We knew a smack in the head if you looked at them the wrong way. Oh. It was the police was not a positive thing. It was more that I had a couple of friends in school who I knew were decent people, and they said, "No, no, you know, I know you." This is what people think about police, and this might be what you've experienced. But there's a whole group of police who are the right people doing the right thing, mostly. So I was I was really lucky when I first joined the police. I got I got hooked up with a partner who was a, a really good communicator. He was a he was a funny guy. He often used humour to break people's animosity, and he knew um, where the pitfalls were and who not to associate with in the police and elsewhere. And he guided me um, in the right direction, and eventually that group that I knew, who you know did police 
Rock, good place in the right way. We just loved and enjoyed the job. You know, that group grew and, you know, most of my friends from that era now are in charge of significant pieces of the police and we have a lot of say about how it happens. So I'm grateful to make, have made those connections in the police early with, and I'm sure it's the same in every department, you know, there's people who do things the right way all the time and then there's people that, you know, maybe haven't got the best mm-hmm. habits, you know. Um, but you know, 1980s in the police in Queensland, it's pretty rough and ready. You know, that massive inquiry unearthed a lot of issues about police corruption and police behaviour and other things. Um, and I'm so relieved now that when I got to be in a position of authority, I used to look back and think, I wonder how the senior sergeants and inspectors back when I was a young guy ever slept at night knowing all this mayhem was going on and police were were so loose and how they behave. Because um, I don't have to lose sleep about that at all now. I know hand on heart that the police that work for and with me, um, they care about what they do. You know, they they are open and accountable about what they do. They make mistakes when they have a bad day sometimes, but there's no malice in what they do. You know, they they welcome the body worn videos when they're implemented. The police just started buying them themselves because they wanted to be accountable and record what they did. Mm. So I've got so much respect for the culture of police here, um, particularly because it's changed, uh, but particularly because I've seen the culture of police elsewhere. So when I went on my church or fellowship, some of the places I visited, thought you could tell the culture of police was very um, adversarial with the community and aggressive, and police felt like they were under siege all the time, and obviously the environment was quite different some of the places I, I went and worked. Uh, but I came home thinking I'm grateful for the culture, the, the Australian police culture. And I think that's probably why we get along so well with Canadians because I see a lot of similarities between our culture about, you know, we're not here to shoot people, we're here to save people. You know, we're not, we're here to help people primarily. And mm-hmm. I'll use force if we have to, but I'm part of it. You know, I get a feeling from a lot of Canadians that spoke to the police feel like that too. We're part of this community. We're not, we're not an occupying force. Well, with that, um, maybe when you went through your application process and then the initial training, so kind of like moving on to your your law enforcement career, uh, back in those days, was it very paramilitary, kind of the very regimented, structured uh, rank and order? Is that kind of the same setup sure. that you had back then as mm-hmm. you know they're trying to move away from now? Yeah, it was was very heavily law-based, so we did a lot of remembering pieces of law and and not so much about process or policy either. It was just about heavy legislation-based. We did a lot of marching, which I've I've never marched to a job uh, (laughs) since, even though, though, you know, I love a good parade. Um, Operational skills training back then was pretty basic. Uh, but there was never a lot of training on um, the things that we see as important now. And I've had a lot of influence over what the training consists of about you know, um, coaching people's emotional intelligence and decision-making is a big piece of recruit training now, um, giving them the resilience, physical and mental resilience to be able to cope with you know, what the expectations are. Um, you know, I think what we do well here in Queensland, we use a lot of scenario training where that we replicate real situation to a very high level of reality, to a very high fidelity, and we practice doing things well 
for a good outcome. With recruits, before they actually have to do it, it's like fantastic rehearsals. And I was part of a project where we built that big training center that has a massive scenario village, man, it's like a little city, um, where we go and immerse recruits in very realistic situations and then we coach them towards good outcomes and it as realistically as I can. So, you know, I didn't get any of that when I went through the academy. It's pretty much that you could recite the definition of assault and the other pieces of law and you didn't cause any trouble and you passed all your physical tests, you were, you were booted out. And um, hmm. I was only lucky, I think the best training was when I actually got a good partner and I watched how he worked and how he communicated and I picked up a lot from that first six months with him. The street work, learning like as you go kind of on the job. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah that, I think that on-the-job training is, um, is probably more formational, more, more of a foundation than, than the college training. So now we talk about the program for recruits is six months roughly at the academy, and then it's another 12 months when you're on the street. So you, your, your program is 18 months before you're appointed. You get, so you get sworn in as a constable, after your six months, but you're not permanently appointed for another 12 months. So we then we give them all that 12 months on the road with with mentors and field training officers, and they and they complete you know workplace activities and assessments throughout that period. Uh, so you know I think that that's where they really earn their earn their stripes. Basically. Maybe I'll kind of ask this here because it's probably a good transition to it is. Do you have any thoughts around, or maybe this even, I don't know if this comes up in Australia, but it's a its a narrative that's up here in Canada, looking at a policing college. So you basically go get a degree in, you know, de-escalation and uh, I think they want bias training and or bias awareness training and all kinds of things. But when I, I listen to what you're saying, and I remember back to my experiences going through uh, recruit class with the RCMP and then I jumped over to the Edmonton police so back mm-hmm. through training again with them and then you get that time on the road uh, the, like you can't substitute that practical experience that hands-on experience with uh, books and um, it, for me I think where I learned the most uh, just as you were kind of saying is like on the street actually talking to people Granted, it's a it's a much more dangerous environment, but you need very good trainers, uh, people that are very dedicated to doing that role to do it. You don't want to just have anybody training your your brand new recruits. But I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of torn between this idea of a college or prof- turning the police into a profession in that sense, where you, I don't know. It's almost like replacing the practical stuff with just theory, and then just send you out there? Yeah, they're, they're two different pieces of learning. So I, um, I did go to university quite early because I always wanted to go to university and I did things I was interested in. I was the first graduates of the criminology school here. Well, they were only very new. Um, and it helped certainly helped me understand how to learn. It helped me think more broadly about the profession as it was becoming a profession. I think there's, I don't think that could replace, or I don't think that should be a prerequisite before um, learning the practical skills and learning the on the street skills. 
as long as you get them from a good partner who's teaching you the right way to do things and who's modeling the behaviors. As you go on and professionally develop, um, you know, my advice has always been, you know, everyone needs to keep doing some type of study and some type of professional development, not just to tick boxes for a promotional list or anything like that, but because, mm. um, you know, a job's changing and learning is, is an essential part of it. And if you're not involved in the wider, in the wider criminal justice community or the criminology community and those things, um, you know, you might be ha- having a particular understanding of a problem um, from your point of view as a street police officer that deals with domestic violence is a, is a great example of this. You know, street police have a particular view of domestic violence that is very much based on what they see mm-hmm. and what they experience at that scene. Um, we're still learning more about domestic violence now because we're opening our, our minds to the ideas that, you know, um, you know, people studying the dynamics of domestic violence and coercive control and, and the cycles of domestic violence. And if we're not open to that, you know, we can't be expected to do a good job of the, of the contact that we have. Um, and if, you know, my advice to any, any people in the police is just find something you're interested in and just keep plugging away at something achievable and interesting because um, nothing worse than doing university study that, that you hate mm-hmm. and having to, having to just pass and get through. Uh, I always did things I was interested in, engaging, I'm still doing stuff, much to my, my children. Look at me as, a, as I've got a, one young, uh, my son's about to finish his senior school and he said, are you still studying? I said, yeah, I still do stuff with my friends from the uni and I, but I don't do stuff that's interested in to do research together because He's a great guy and he's a friend of mine. We get to hang out together and I can make that research happen. And it's stuff that we can then turn into something useful for operational police or police somewhere else to do. Um, I don't do it because I want to get another degree, another qualification. Mm. Um, he was horrified at the thought, but I'm sure one day he'll find something that puts a bit of fire in his belly and he'll want to do a bit more study. Yeah. He'll want to understand a bit more about it. Because um, definitely... Not going to substitute that practical skill of getting out there with an experienced operator who's going to coach and look after you. Yeah, you know, I like I did my degree in finance and then jumped over to police, and now I've got you know eleven years. Am I at? Yeah, eleven years on. Mm. Um, so I still got a ways to go, but I love doing the operational side of things. But um, doing the the union work that I the with our association, mm. um, that's kind of rekindled some stuff that I'm like, ah, you know what, I might actually like to go and try, uh, you know, maybe a different degree or look at a, a different path to things. I, I love learning about people. I love talking to people. So, I mean, even just this podcasting is like a, a new direction. Um, so as long as you kind of find something that piques your interest and like you said, it's achievable. Um, some things are a little harder than others to get, but mm. if you think, you know, this is achievable and you got the right people in the right places to help you along as well, um, you know, you can kind of make a journey of it and your whole life is just learning the whole way, right until you're, right until you die, you can be learning. So yeah, yeah. the podcast is a good example. I think, you know, your interest in this is obviously, you know, obviously you got some support and, and you've got some guy from Australia talking to you now because 
you know, you showed the interest and I'm interested. So, you know, that in itself is professional development and learning. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so one of the things, uh, just before getting onto like the numerous programs that you've been a part of, just wondering if you could kind of run us through like some of the different things you've done in your career because uh, like you've been in tactical, you've been in supervisor roles. So can you kind of walk us through what your career might have looked like? Uh, sure. It's, uh, um, I, I just want to preface this with um, when I talk to people about the police um, who are not in the police, I try and explain them. It's like you can have 10 different jobs in the one organization mm-hmm. that are all connected without ever having to resign and retire and change. Um, so I, I just still think, it's, even though it's more challenging than it's ever been, um, it's still one of the best jobs around, um, mainly because you remain connected to purpose throughout your career. So I worked in uh, my first posting was at Mobile Patrols, which is like our first response to urgent type calls in the greater Brisbane area. Um, pretty much, you know, uh, 200 police at that station, and we were just to everything urgent and rapid and make quick decisions and it was great because we generally left before much paperwork had to be done by the local police so we were sort of like to contain and hand over people and take the jobs that we wanted to and that was exciting and fun. Um, I worked in suburban police stations as a first response general general duties is what they called in Australia, general duties officer, which is the most underrated profession in the police because everyone calls it general duties but they're actually the most professionalized area of the police, you know, general duties have to respond to everything, mm-hmm. you know. They are the tactical response. They are the crisis negotiators. They are the mental health workers. They are the, they are the first criminal investigation at a homicide. They are everything. So, you know, just a shout out to everyone in general duties, like I'm now in charge of the general duties area. Um, I uh, did some time in plain clothes and investigative, rotating through, you know, child protection and other areas. And I quickly got, I got um, asked to go back to the academy to teach uh, operational skills and uh, that type of stuff early on. Um, I did that for a little while, went back out to mobile patrols. And then uh, I, at that time, really wanted to do selection for our um, special emergency response team, which is the, the tactical areas. Um, and it was a uh, grueling uh, three-month selection uh, course. Uh, run a lot with it. We run it in conjunction with the military here. So it's run um, a lot at, SA, at the military bases by SAS instructors and other things. So I went through that course. Um, I thought I'd passed it until the last day. And they said, yeah, you're just not quite right yet because you're quite young and they didn't really gel with everybody and mm. you know you can come back and do it again next year so I got I remember that very moment when my heart sank thinking I've just finished three months of torture yeah and and, and I didn't make it but I came back the next year and they were surprised to see me and um I went through with a group of friends of mine who were like my lifelong buddies now and um made it through the selection for the uh, uh for the team and shortly after that, they stood up a new permanent public order squad, which we hadn't had in Queensland before. So it was like a riot squad. Um, and I was promoted sergeant into that riot squad. Um, was, I'd only been in the job for seven years at that time when I made sergeant. So I don't think I'd have made sergeant out and first response because, you know, obviously got the old crusty uh, 
people out there with much more experience than me. But in the tactical areas, <laughs> I, I was obviously much more um, suitable. Um, spent eight years there, and it was very good. You know, that, that period was so um, important, I think, not just for the unit, but, but for Queensland, because we had a history that was very checkered with public protest. So, you know, there was a period in Queensland where you weren't allowed to protest on the street and it was very confrontational and the police would go out and remove anyone that was protesting on the street. It was very adversarial. Uh-huh. Oh. So when they started our full-time unit, there was just, it's it's odd when you say it out loud now, but there was a protest, there was a, a period in the 1970s, early 80s where the Premier of Queensland just declared that street protests were unlawful and the police were used as a battering ram to get people off the streets and Imagine how that went with the public perception police. But mm-hmm. when we started up this full-time public order squad, again, with groups of people who knew that people had a right to protest and that they could do so peacefully, and that was one of the things that I'm sure that uh, uh, everyone would agree with, that we facilitated a lot of protests instead of argued against it. You know, we helped people have safe protests in a reasonable way uh, where there was no confrontation with police. You know, we set up processes of negotiating with protest organisers and allocating them a site to be, uh, getting to know them personally. And we had a lot of, you know, potentially volatile protest groups who um, ended up having no conflict with the police and no dramas and they got that say. And over that eight years, I think that set a foundation for peaceful protest in Queensland that continued on. Um, I went from there to a newly formed tactical crime squad um, in the Brisbane city district, which was a new sort of in-between um, general duties and tactical policing, um, sort of like that, uh, I don't know what you'd call it in the States, but you see, you know, um, dressed down, playing college officers that are not detectives and investigators, but where were the um, doing the bypass drug deals, doing the low-level drug dealing and street crime, mm-hmm. okay. and, um, I, uh, and a branch of that was... Um, we had a particular area in Brisbane that was known for street prostitution and drug dealing. So I ran uh, undercover operations there for street and drug prostitution, um, which was also an eye-opener to mean that um, the way we policed that previously was very heavily enforcement-based and targeted at the, at the women, who mostly women who were on the street. And um, we, we flipped that on its head and targeted the drug dealers and the people who were harming the women and left the women alone and, and, and just by shifting the way we targeted and who we targeted, the women who were actually the victims when you looked at the dynamics of it, you know, there were people spending a thousand dollars a day on heroin at that point. Um, when we stopped arresting them and started targeting the flow of drugs and money effectively, um, and we really did work hard at that, um, the women actually couldn't make enough money to buy drugs and they couldn't get enough drugs so it actually started to take help so I learned a lot from that dynamic the way you look at a problem and hmm. work out who are the victims and what your role is and it is so being a sort of guy that thinks we could arrest the world and the courts will sort them out at that point it was interesting for me to learn that all oh, the people who were arresting were probably actually harming um, so maybe if I stop arresting them and start targeting the problem and where the problem opportunities are you know, we're only a small team, but we made a massive difference in that street. You know, reduced street prostitution almost down to nothing. Women took help. Less women were hurt on the street. It was just fantastic. Not to mention 
it was fantastic on policing. You know, you got undercover people on the streets, you know, got listening to bosses, you're doing controlled operations and controlled activities for drug buys, you're rolling out on drug targets really quickly. It was, it was definitely fun police TV style policing at some point. Well, and you, you talked about that on like one of the, uh, it was, a, I'm trying to remember the website. It wasn't your TED Talk. It was on some... Was, uh, oh, I think there was a podcast where I spoke about that, yeah. Yeah, and I just... I, I had that specifically noted in the notes here about the work you'd done with uh, some of those girls out on the street because it seemed like uh, maybe a bit of a turning point in your career where you're starting to head more down the path of uh, helping these people and not so much just, you know, like, uh, I'll just say, like, tactical or, you know, like you're saying, it's just about arrests. Is that kind of a one of the main turning points? Yeah, it definitely made me look at what impact you had when you did what I thought police work was all about. And I, I had a moment when uh, I was working with the other detective sergeant that was running the unit, and he was showing me how the operations work, and we we arrested a street worker for public solicitation and. You know, she was cranky and upset, and we took her to the watch house and charged her. And I said, what happens now? And he goes, oh, well, she gets a $300 fine. I said, but is she going to get any help? Obviously, she's going to be having a bad night coming down off heroin tonight. And obviously, she's got health issues. And he said, oh, no, she'll just get a fine. And I thought, well, we probably just did her more harm than good because now she's got to go and do three more jobs to make 300 bucks to pay that fine. Or she'll get a warrant and get arrested for that fine down the track. And I thought, oh, that was a pointless and negative behavior from us to go, why would I target her? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we went a little bit deeper into it and actually did interviews with the girls on the street, girls and you know, the trans people and other people there as well. Um, and we did video interviews at the time where I asked them about their background, you know, where did you come from? How did you get into this? You know, what do you think the problems are? And, I guess I was bewildered as to why police would be asking these questions because before all we did was arrest them and move them on. And I said, I really want to understand what's going on with you because, you know, you seem like a really nice person. I've, I've met you a few times now when there's no problems and I want to know how you end up in this situation. And I think if police had a better understanding of how you end up here in this desperate situation, you know, putting yourself in harm's way for money for drugs, then maybe maybe we could do a better job and I ended up getting 10 interviews with these street workers and I showed them to all the police in the area as part of training to go, this is where this person's come from and why they're there and this is why we're doing things differently. Mm-hmm. And that's when I knew, even though we just did arrest a lot of people, we actually arrested a lot of people. Um, there's nothing to make 20 or 30 arrests a night. Um, but... Uh, we would pick the eyes out of those arrests and say, well, this guy's got serious, you know, background for violence and offending behavior. So we would do some more work on that person to think of the potential predator because we hadn't had two street prostitutes murdered during that period. Um, and we did identify those people through that work, that the offenders through that work. Um, or, uh, were, what were the connections between the drug dealing and and that area. So whenever we got someone that was offering drugs or offering to deal drugs, we would instantly roll out an operation on them and turn them over as quick as we could. And eventually the impact of that was that people were 
to frighten the bling drugs into that area. Mm-hmm. And people that were coming to give money for sex and that, well, they were also too frightened to go there because they didn't ask with the police officer that I was speaking to. So by cutting the flow of drugs and money and pushing that policing effort towards the actual things that could change the problem, you know, we went from about 120 street workers that were on now profiles down to, down to around 20. Um, and word on the street was that the girls just told us they can't make money there anymore and they can't get drugs without thinking the police are around everywhere. So all the agencies that were in the area, and they were always there, all the support agencies who never really got past saying hello to the girls, all of a sudden the girls were saying, actually, I need some help because, you know, I can't, I can't get drugs anymore. I can't make a living doing this. I need to, I need to take the help that was available. Well, uh, it was, it was fantastic. It was a really good revelation to me to think, okay, well, if we can direct our efforts towards a better understanding of the problem, we'll actually end up doing more good than harm. Well, and you know what? That kind of makes me, as you're saying all this, it makes me think of how success might be measured. So one, I, I don't know if it's the same with um, your services, but up here, no matter where it is in Canada, uh, success seems to be measured in statistics because every you know city or municipality or whoever's paying foot in the bill wants to see what they're getting for every dollar they spend. So mm-hmm. more arrests, more tickets, uh, whatever it might be. And not saying that there's quotas, because I know lots of people always ask that, oh, you got a ticket quota. No, there isn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, just in general, people want to see like the numbers, the numbers, how many thefts are happening, how many assaults, you know, all these different things. But what if, what if you could kind of flip it on its head and just say, how about if you don't hear about these things or don't hear from us, mm-hmm. you know, things are maybe going a little better or things are going good. And not saying that we don't need yeah, the absence of yeah, 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 the absence of it. Well, you you did a finance degree. Yeah. yeah I suppose you've got to look at it like um, do you want to see how many people got arrested or do you want to see how many people didn't get assaulted or how many crimes didn't happen? So the absence of, and I had that same experience when I was in the, in the public order squad. We would often go to a country town that had, had a problem. We would arrest everybody we could. There was zero tolerance policing at its best. And we would leave and they would pat us on the back and say, what a great job, you cleaned up that town. And, and to a degree, that had an effect. Certainly, you know, you guys you, you put the team to a town and you clean up the streets. We arrested 75 people in one night in a country town. And um, they were having what's called a, it's a, called a B&S ball, but it's bachelors and spencers, like a country hoedown type. Mm. function where everyone from around the country comes to this one town and they've had terrible problems with alcohol and violence there in the past. So I got us in, we arrested 75 people in one night and we all got a pat on the back, did a great job we did. And I didn't realize that they didn't have that function again for two or three years because they were terrified of the police being there. So now over-policing of that problem led to a really positive um, community event not happening for two or three years. So um, oh, that's what I knew that you've got to measure the effects of what you do, not just the activities that you do. Yeah. So while you can easy to stack up arrests and tickets, uh, and you, but you might end up with having very little effect for a community that hates you. Because you know, you know, if you've been for ten years in rough areas, you know that there's always low hanging fruit you can arrest. Um, but I honestly, I'd rather see police 
use their discretion and use that leverage now to push those people towards what is the bulk of police work here, and I assume it's the same where you are, but so much of our work is health issues and drug issues and mental health issues. Yeah. But it won't be solved by, they won't be solved by police arresting people. Uh, we need to push people and push people to help and push people to services and use our position and our influence and our authority even if we can, you know, push people into diversion so that they fix the problem, not just get another charge on the sheet. Yeah, I think we, um, at least here, my experience has been we've we've gone a little too far to the side of hands-off where mm-hmm. we don't even push people into like diversion or anything. It's, everything is just, hey, would you please come yeah, well, uh, seek counseling or seek help or whatever. Do it when it's right for you. And then that's it. And it's like, you know, at some point, there there's some people who are so bad that, it's like okay, we we do need to look at some options. We need uh, intervention, um, and sometimes there's got to be a hard line, you know, where you say, okay, you've you've caused X amount of dollars in damage, or you've hurt X amount of people. Like you are now going to get help, mm-hmm. and sometimes you got to make people go. Yeah. Uh, a, a couple of things that I saw on your uh, on your resume, I'll say was uh, some of the volunteer work. I wanted to ask a bit about this. Um, you had some stuff here. It was called the MICA Projects Homeless Outreach. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I was wondering, like, is this a specific area or is it just like a building that you had to deal with? Uh, what is this? Uh, no, that, well, when I was in charge of the city, one of the big issues was the number of homeless people and police having conflicts with them. So, well, you know, I found the police at that point, were frustrated with the fact that at 2 o'clock in the morning they'd got a homeless person was having a crisis and there was nobody to call. So police being police, they would arrest them for public uh, public order offences or some drunken public, and they would often give them uh, a short stay at the police watch house mm-hmm. where they would get a meal and they would probably be a little bit safer. But this became a habit where... Our response to homelessness was pretty much arresting homeless people and putting them in the watch house. And that flared up into problems where police had, had arrested people and it had become violent mm. and there were bad videos of it. So it was such a negative perception of police driven by a lack of services and no one willing to work with police because of the perception of police that um, we um, had to really look at who, we, who could we connect with and who could we, who could we work with that would actually come out with us and help us to connect this person instead of taking them to the watch out? So, Micah Projects are an organisation in Brisbane. They run a street to home team. They did not want to work with us, neither did anyone else, because we had a terrible reputation about dealing with homeless people. And my job as a, as a senior person uh, was to make friends with them pretty much and build their trust. And work and try and get them to help us to help homeless people when you know I had to overcome all those perceptions of police and their negativity towards police and their poor experience of you know things they'd seen happen with the police. And uh, over a period of about two years, you know, frontline police ended up doing homeless outreach with Micah Project together. And um, one of the very first meetings I went to about it, um, I was in uniform. 
people just liked us so much that people got up and sat somewhere else. Mm. They didn't want to sit next to me. And I thought, oh, for, ha- for heaven's sake, I'm here at 7 o'clock at night in my own time. Um, I really want to make friends and relationships here so that we can all together help these people who we're not helping. And um, people were putting their hand up saying, why are the police here? They can arrest people. Or why are the police here? And I tell you, after the end of that first, we did a week of outreach. I got frontline police to come along and do the outreach together with people, mm-hmm. uh, with, the, with the community. And they did vulnerability surveys and other contact with homeless people. Everyone in the community said they couldn't have done it without the police. Oh, that's good. They were all, they all said, oh my God, the police were so good. Oh, the police knew this guy. They knew his first name. Oh, aren't the police such, such good people? Because they were basing their perceptions of us on a video they'd seen or a story they'd heard. They'd never actually walked the street with a police officer. And even though the police were a little bit um, uh, cranky with me because I told them there was a big hot buffet breakfast every morning, um, and that's part of my ruse to get them involved. And there wasn't a big breakfast every morning. So yeah. they still enjoyed the outreach. And they still enjoyed the fact that police together with communities walking the streets, talking to homeless people, um, showed a huge step forward. Um, and I, I got a little bit of criticism. Like some of my bosses were like, you're not the homeless police. You know, we've got to look after the crime. And, you know, sure, if you're going to do this, it's an extra activity for you. You know, it's like to be your project, but, you know, you've got to stick to your core business. But after a few years, they, we all understood that in a big city, homelessness is part of police core business because we have contact with those people probably more than anyone else. Yeah. So if we're going to have that contact, we can at least make that contact positive. We can at least make that contact some way of connecting them with help. So what what changed in Brisbane was the attitude and culture of police as a result of being involved in the community engagement stuff that actually helped them get people off the streets and actually helped people get houses. They felt so much better about their job and it freed up a it freed up a hell of a lot of time where we would deal with a homeless person in crisis. We'd have to take them to the hospital to get a medical clearance and then we'd take them to the watch house and they'd be off the road for three hours. You know, the person, you know, they're not the easiest people to deal with, like a homeless person in crisis. They haven't got the best personal hygiene, so the police are dealing with people who are potentially you know, really unwell and everything. So we got all that time back because instead of arresting them, we would call our friends from Market Project and say, I've got John here, he's having a bad day. I don't want to take him to the watch house because, you know, that's not going to help. But if if I can get you to help him and, John, what do you think? Can you talk to these people today? Because, you know, your options are pretty looking pretty ordinary. Um, making that connection, using that leverage was a great way of getting that person to take the help that they wouldn't take before. And we go back on the road in 10 minutes and we're back dealing with core business like we were before. Yeah. Uh, and that's continued to this day. They still do. It's been years since I've been charged with the city, but they still have that culture. You know, we call people to help and we help get people off the streets. And uh, I think that did infect the way they did business generally because now, you know, police are more open to the fact that we can't solve problems by ourselves, so we can't arrest our way out of everything. Yeah, and you know what? It's, well, it's always nice to have a partner there, whether it's, someone from uh, dealing with homelessness or mental health, whatever it might be. Mm. I mean, there's other people with other resources and information that might be better suited to fix a problem. We have a similar program here, 24-7 Crisis Diversion. And 
as long as the person's not violent, uh, you know, you can call them up and they'll bring them blankets or transport them wherever they need. Um, just help them out with a bunch of different resources. And then that frees you up to go to some of the criminal calls that are out there. So mm-hmm. it is a nice partnership. Um, and you do a lot of work with youth. Uh, so one of the things I saw here was this youth plus flexible learning. Um, but did you, uh, could you just say a few words on like some of the work you've done with youth, whether it's that program in particular, or if you have some other highlightable ones? Oh, well, sure. We, um, once we dug into the homeless problem in the city and we got to understand what was happening, there was like different communities of homeless, if you want to call it that. There were older people who, you know, had systemic health and medical issues and mental health issues. But there was also this cohort of young kids who, the police in the city used to say they're not homeless, they just don't go home. Mm. And they love coming into the city and they sleep under the bridge. And they, you know, they, wasn't until I realized I could have been one of those kids that I started to look at them differently. Um, and, but, but they were highly involved in offending. So they were the kids that were doing the robberies. So it was, there was a rape culture amongst the group at the time where you had to sort of submit to rape if you were a girl to be part of that group or you had to do initiations where you had to go and rob someone and film it and post it online if you wanted to be part of their gang. And they were doing, you know, soft robberies and other things around the city uh, and they were really hard to reach. But it was particularly made up of um, different cultural groups. So looking at the different cultural groups that made up. So we had a lot of Pacific Islander kids. Um, a lot of New Zealand kids, the Kiwis, uh, Maori children, uh, obviously First Nations, Aboriginal children as well. Um, so one of the most effective things we did was we employed, a, I got a small grant of about $25,000 and we employed a youth worker, uh, but we matched that youth worker with the culture of the group that was working at the time. So they're mostly Pacific Islander kids and, and Maori kids. So we employed this big islander guy who was the most friendly, gregarious guy you'd ever meet. He'd been on the streets himself, and he went out together with us um, to do the same type of outreach, but targeted at youth a different way. And his role was to reduce the numbers of that group to a point where any kids who would take help and would go with him and would could be reconnected with family or he would help them get jobs and other stuff, they would. And then we would only target them the kids who were the anchors, so the kids who were really seriously offending and the main core agitators in the group. So we ended up having to arrest much fewer people and we helped a lot more people. Uh, and part of that, when you talk about the Youth Plus Flexible Learning Network, in the city there was a school um, where if you weren't welcome in any other school, if you'd been kicked out of every other school or you're a young mother who had a child and couldn't get into another school, this school would welcome you. And it was a totally different school. You went to school there. There were, you got breakfast supplied. Um, there were no, I'm not going to say no rules, but the school was governed by values. So, uh, and the school was governed by a council made up of the children at the school. Oh, wow. So if someone had been behaving poorly at school, the student council and everyone would meet and they'd ask that person, you know, how's your behavior fitting in with these things we've agreed to, these values? And it was, I could take my hat off to them, even though it was religious, religion based. They didn't throw a lot of religion at people, which helped. Um, but they did successfully translate some of those values of religion into, you know, we give people voice. Everybody is welcome. 
you know, we give people um, food and the, the guy who was the head of campus was, strangely, I made this connection. He was my teacher at school. He was my physics teacher. And I looked at him and I said, I, I know you. And he said, yeah, I remember you from school. And he was the head of campus for this thing. So one of my teachers ran this school. And he said, you're on the board now. So I was on the board for that school and four other schools who were the same type where all these kids who otherwise would be on the street could come to school. Um, they had regular police contact because I was in there all the time making breakfast and, home and catching up with them um, when I could. Uh, and um, I just, it was a fantastic little piece of the puzzle for, for kids that were on the street in the city. Um, and it, and it, it wasn't locked on me, but uh, there were a few kids there. I was looking at them and I thought, oh, I was two steps away from being where you are and I totally get where you're at. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, uh, that was very good. Um, it's obviously translated over to my kids. My daughter's just graduated as a social worker and she's working in domestic violence space. Um, I, uh, my young, youngest wants to join the police and my middle child wants to, he's thinking of being a school counselor, doing a psychology degree and a social work degree. So it's nice to know I've influenced my kids that way as well. Yeah, that's pretty cool to see, uh, you know, all that stuff kind of passing on to your own kids. Um, I don't know where you find the time to do all that stuff, but the... Um, I don't know, yeah. yeah. You just don't sleep. That's why I always pick a little project. I, I found if I really wanted to do something, I would make a project out of it. And if I, particularly if I got someone from the university involved, which did help me argue for the merits of something, and uh, and argue for funding sometimes, a little bit of money. I never got any huge funding, but I always got little bits of money to help. Whenever I made a project out of something, it kind of was my little mechanism to tie me to an outcome and a timeline. So I would then go, okay, I, this is now a project, this idea that I've had or this connection that I've made. And um, let's formalize a little bit of it. And then I felt obliged to start and finish it. So um, that's kind of my little personal mechanism for making sure that I actually start and finish some of the ideas and things that I'm interested in. And that, that also paid off at the end too, because then we could market the success of it by, you know, being able to show, you know, here's a good evaluation of it. You know, here's something we did with the university and with this other person. So it was pretty wholesome as far as representing police differently from, from, um, what, you know, what my people might see on the news or hear from their friends. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of like not having all the time in the world, but you do TED Talks. This is something that uh, I think is very curious. The first person I've had on that I can think of that even does these. How do you even get involved in that? Uh, I'm not going to call it a cult. But <laughs> okay. The whole, the whole TED arrangement intrigued me. So I applied for a, a ticket to go and see the TED Talks in Brisbane. and it was odd because you log on and you've got to write a story about why you want a bloody ticket. And I was like, I just want to buy a ticket. It's 50 bucks. I'm going to go along for the day. Like, yeah. But you had to write a 250 word piece about why you want to go to the event. And I thought, man, I I didn't understand it at the time that they curate the audience. So I get the right sort of people there who are probably usually introverts, but people that want to actually do something mm. with ideas and they want to connect with people. And this is it's just a fantastic vehicle to make that happen. 
Um, and when I applied for the ticket, I got an email from them saying, oh, you'll have to meet us for a coffee and we'll talk about it. And I'm like, geez, I never <laughs> found it so hard to get a ticket for something before. Yeah. And when I met with them, they asked me to do a talk. So you can't, you can't volunteer for a TED talk. You've got to be invited. Um, it's not how it works. You've got to, they've got to, they've got to somehow find you and hear from, hear about you. Oh, okay. Um, the word of mouth was a lot. So they had heard about me and they asked me to do a talk. Um, why well, I think it was important was I didn't really understand what had happened in the city as well as I could have. So they said, we've looked at you and seen the stuff you've done in the city and when people told us about you on this homeless work and the youth work that you did and how that changed the culture of police for the better. And I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. So they sent me away and said, come up with an idea about what you think was at the middle of it. And it was, it was amazing when I thought about it. And I thought, well, what actually happened? Because we did a lot of stuff. We did a lot of good. I was uh, proud of it and pleased to be involved. Of, you know, particularly how the role of police, you know, just took it up. But then when I had to think about what actually happened and what were the things that made the difference, it came down to one word and it was empathy. Mm. And I said, what happened in, with everything that we did, we had a little project and we did a lot of little projects, a lot of micro projects about giving people free tickets to get out of town instead of giving them a move on direction. So they get a free ticket to get on a bus or a train and get back to where they needed to be. Um, little tiny things like that. They all had a common element of empathy where police in a position of authority with a lot of power and status some preconceived expectations about what you're going to get from a police officer in play. Um, we're very powerful when police said, I'm worried about you, and I've got a friend here who's going to help you, or I've got a ticket here that's going to help you get home, mm-hmm. or I've got, um, you know, I've got a youth worker who can come and see you and make sure that you're not in this position. And the power of police being able to show empathy at that moment not only was far more effective, and far more um, a respectful way of conducting that thing. But I still believe this day it changed who that police officer was for the rest of their career. So they, when they had that experience of, oh, here's a person who I could have easily just given them a move on direction and arrested them or, or thrown them in for drunk. And I asked a question, can I help you? Because I'm really worried about you. And I have some people I know we could probably help you. And they have that experience and that person saying that would be great. And they get that change happening right in front of them because they were a different type of person at that time. Um, that I think that triggers something very strong in a police officer to think, okay, well, maybe my job's not just writing that person a ticket or, or putting them in the watch house. Maybe my job is to see what I can do about the problem because I'm a person and he's a, and they're, they're a person and we are here right now, you know, and, and I don't sound like I'm wearing yoga pants and singing Kumbaya, but, you know, we are connected, you know, at that time because we're both sitting here trying to work out this problem for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw that many, many times with police who were, you know, probably a little bit burnt out, probably a little bit bitter and jaded, who 
work with a youth worker and help the young kids and got them a meal and got them a ticket home. And I saw that happen and I saw them, the rough edges soften. I saw them become a happier, better person at work. You know, our sick leave went down at the station. The, the morale at the station improved. You know, we got more time to do the things that they thought were core business, you know, the core crime issues and other things because people were helping us with our job. We weren't doing it on our own. And I saw police use that same approach to other problems. So they would go to a house break-in and instead of just taking the report and leaving, they would say things like, can I come and check on you because you look really upset? So I might just drop back in tomorrow and make sure you're okay. So I'll come back and I'll bring the crime prevention sergeant and we'll do a security order to your house because I know this has been upsetting to you. So I just saw them pick up this little idea that if you showed a bit of empathy and you did a couple of little extra things, uh, that was very worthwhile for both you and the person involved. And that was what the TED talk was based on. It was a lot of minutes of sheer terror because there was, there's no auto cue. You've got to remember it and you're on, on the internet live. And oh, wow. I had a meltdown beforehand because I was so nervous about doing it. Yeah. I thank my wife because she kind of yelled at me at the, just before I went on. I said, I'm not doing it. I said, I'm going to stuff this up. And she said, you get on there, your children are watching. That <laughs> yeah. so was, uh, was good. And, and since then, it's been really nice that that TED Talk now gets used in universities and criminology studies around the world. I get I get messages from people all the time to say, you know, I watch this and I just thank you. It's nice to know that police are thinking like this and there's people like you that are committed to doing something about it. And uh, It's uh, been a wonderful little segue. Now I'm part of the TED community because I coach other speakers and I help run the event here in Brisbane, the Brisbane TEDx. And I, I don't have time to do it. Um, but mm-hmm. like I said to my wife, I go back into that community and there's all these people who come there with ideas and with, who are generally introverts who, who want to be involved and actually do something and take action. Uh, and it's such a positive group that really you rarely find in one place at any one time. It's an amazing thing to be involved in still. Uh, I've helped another police officer do one. Is there any sort of commitment to it then? Like, are you on, uh, under a contract to work with them or is it just kind of as you want to come and go? Oh, no, nobody makes any money out of TED. So it's not, not profit. Nobody gets paid. Um, there's no money involved. It's just people that want to believe in putting ideas into action mm. and that TED's the vehicle for it to happen. Um, people watch and share the videos. But the, mm-hmm. if you ever get a chance to go to an actual event, it's the whole day. So we had we had one recently. I set up an activation space as a little VR project I did where we had VR de-escalation scenarios. Um, but I, I coach the speakers and then I help them in the green room so they don't run out, run away down the street screening before they go on. And um, so uh, the event itself, you end up meeting five people you want to get to know and people end up connecting with you and it's not like corporate connection or networking you see at some conferences or other things people who want to buy or sell things to you or people want to do that this is you know ground level very wholesome connection with people who are in the community trying to do good things and it's nice that police are now involved in that at some level because you know there's 12,000 of us here in Queensland we're in the community and we're trying to do good things mm-hmm. we just can't do it by ourselves well that's awesome um, I you know it's always good to learn something new. And I, yeah, I haven't talked to anybody who's been a part of this program. So very interested uh, uh, 
to learn about this when I put it on the list of things I was sending to you. Sure. Um, so one of the last things uh, I was going to ask just before we kind of wrap up was uh, I saw this recently. You guys are doing a big uh, international recruiting drive. Yeah. Do, do you have much uh, knowledge on this or is that kind of something? I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I told a friend I would ask so because <laughs> he was interested. Well, yeah, get in my details because we're, uh, <laughs> we're just experiencing, mm-hmm. you know, our combination of a lot of different factors, but the labor market here in Australia has picked up with jobs everywhere. So the people who, you know, we generally have a very large pool of people wanting to join the police and that's smaller. Um, I do think personally that the perception of policing and the type of work it is is not very positive right now. So it's very hard to say, yes, people are wanting to do that as a career. We just had two police murdered here. We were ambushed and shot at a country town and it was a horrible event. Oh. And not too many not too many people signing up for that type of work who you know, you've got to get a special type of person to realise that, you know, you are putting on a ballistic vest every day and uh, and a number of other protective accoutrements, you know, you're going to have to, and at the same time, you're going to have to be respectful and polite and deal with social crisis, but you, you, you could be ambushed and you could be hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think that's impacting our recruiting. Um, so one of the options was to open it up to the um, international community of police because we all share a lot of commonalities. So they've waived uh, citizenship requirements for police here for 500 applicants a year. Uh, they are now fast track you into a program. Um, it's a shortened program. Yeah, because they, you know, give a sort of recognition of prior learning. And um, we've, we've done it before and welcomed a lot of, we generally get a lot of people from the UK. Um, I did employ a Canadian uh, guy as an instructor out of the training center, and he's been fantastic. Um, and there are definitely a lot of similarities between our cultures that mm-hmm. made the transition quite easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but be prepared, Queensland is um, 1.8 million square kilometers. Um, it should take, uh, it takes you, uh, you know, a good 20 hours to drive from one end of Queensland to another end of the rest if you drive, if you drive straight away. So, there can be some isolated and remote postings, but you know, yeah. in the major centres along the coast, they're still they're still just like good, um, good, good city policing and other things. You know, but it's quite a diverse career. Oh, that's and and we get paid okay, like six weeks leave, eighty percent superannuation, unlimited sick leave, bank, and we're, we're well looked after. Uh, and uh, I must say, compared to some of the places I've visited and worked in the U- in the US. Um, even though things are, uh, we're experiencing a lot of knife crime and a lot of other uh, other challenges along there. It's a lot safer than some of the other places. I've got a friend who's a professor in Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. I look at 1.6 million people in Philadelphia, and they're looking at 500 murders this year, and 30 policing, 30 shootings on a weekend. You know, I have five breaking ends on the weekend in my area, and my bosses are going crazy. So we're. <laughs> we're we're very safe by comparison to some places in the world. Yeah. Yeah, we get the same in Canada. Like, we always get compared to the U.S., right? It's the the elephant right next to us, right next door. And um, people like to use the same stats when they talk about the U.S. as up in Canada. Mm. But it's it's certainly a lot less uh, violent. But so on certain things, it can be comparable per capita. But, um, yeah, 
it's uh, I, I imagine Australia is kind of more along the lines of Canada when it comes to policing, uh, culture, similarities between the two. So um, just as we're coming up to the end here, I just want to make sure I give you the chance to say how people can follow you. So social media, books, anything you got, uh, how can people kind of get in touch? Uh, well, LinkedIn, LinkedIn seems to be the best, though. Like, uh, I get a lot of good connects through there, and um, much to the um, frustration of our police media, I'll always post things if I've got a thought bubble or something that's tropical at the moment. You know, there's a lot of stuff happening here around youth crime and our problems with youth stealing cars and high-speed pursuits. So, you know, I'd like to think that a senior police officer can be involved in the conversation in a more open way. So, you know, look me up on LinkedIn and my contact details are there and, you know, I mean this in the most genuine way. If I can ever help someone or someone's setting up a program or I want any material from stuff that I've done, um, it's an open book, so I'm happy to share and help anyone develop things. And if you ever have the good fortune to come and visit, look me up and I'll make sure you get looked after while you're here. Well, and you know what? Um, you reached out and uh, we connected on LinkedIn yeah. and... I mean, you've been nothing but great to deal with, uh, especially through our technical difficulties, me being a giant uh, disaster here, <laughs> try to get this set up. So um, if you want to hang on the line, I'll say by offline too, but uh, just want to say thanks for coming on. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on here and, and talk about your story. Thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity and thank you for what you're doing. Good, good to get this out.